Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. A 20-year-old became the sixth person in New York City's jail system to die in 2022. Just after 4 p.m. this past Saturday, a corrections officer found Emmanuel Sullivan dead in his bed at the Robert N. Davern Center on Rikers Island. Victor Pate, a former Rikers inmate who is now the co-director of the Hall Solitary Campaign, an effort to end solitary confinement in New York jails and prisons, said, We do not need more committees, more task forces, or more long overdue plans to address conditions which are well documented and deadly. We need action to decarcerate and we need our electeds to make decisions that will keep incarcerated people and staff alive, safe, and healthy. The cause of death is under investigation by the city's office of the chief medical examiner. As is the case in all deaths in city jails custody, The State Attorney General and City Department of Investigation will also be looking into the circumstances of Sullivan's death. Oversight officials and Rikers court-ordered federal monitor found in their reports this year that corrections officers and medical staff are often the last to respond to inmate deaths, in part because of a daily staffing crisis on the island. A Board of Corrections report released earlier this month concluded Inmates were the first to respond in each of this year's first three deaths in Corrections Department custody, calling the late responses by officers in each case, quote, a chronic and life-threatening issue. One inmate, 52-year-old Herman Diaz, collapsed in March as he choked on an orange. With no officer on the floor of the housing unit and the only officer observing the unit from a separate room barred from interacting with detainees, It was left to Diaz's fellow inmates to respond to the medical episode. No officer intervened as Diaz died. On Tuesday, a federal judge gave the city less than three weeks to come up with a finalized plan to reform Rikers as a federal takeover is being considered by the court. Sullivan was placed in DOC custody on February 8th. His next court date was scheduled for Wednesday, according to the Corrections Department website. 14 people in DOC custody died in 2021. And now we have our monthly roundup of prison disturbances as compiled by Perilous Chronicle. On May 13th, a group of 13 immigrant detainees at the Northwest Detention Center in Tacoma, Washington, began a hunger strike which lasted 10 days, according to the outside support group La Resistencia, according to PRISM, an online media outlet, quote, Among their demands are proper COVID-19 protections, access to medical care, for the facility to be properly cleaned, for in-person visits to restart for the first time since March 2020, for their jobs to be reinstated with just pay, and for edible food and a reduction in commissary prices. The rampant lack of access to legal representation and resources that could help people's immigration cases only adds to the layers of injustice hunger strikers and supporters on the outside are fighting to change. The Northwest Detention Center has been the site of consistent hunger strikes and other political organizing by immigrant detainees for many years. 
To trace the history of this struggle, check out PerilousChronicle.com. On Friday, May 13th, 12 prisoners engaged in what law enforcement officials referred to as a riot in the Albany County Correctional Facility in Albany, New York. According to jail officials, the prisoners concealed their identities with shirts and towels and prevented staff from entering a section of the jail. The prisoners resisted attempts of intrusion by using mops, broomsticks, and cups of urine to defend themselves. The prisoners also poured soap on the floor to make their apprehension difficult. Tear gas and pepper spray were deployed by the Correction Emergency Response Team in order to retake the area, and two prisoners were reportedly treated in the emergency room due to injuries resulting from unknown physical altercations. According to jail officials, the riot was initiated by disgruntled prisoners who demanded a specific correctional officer be removed from their tier as he was denying them access to clean linens and clothes from family. Three minors incarcerated at the Ware Youth Center in Louisiana escaped from the facility on Saturday, May 14th, allegedly with the help of a 21-year-old female guard who was spotted by a surveillance camera driving the trio out of the facility. The four were arrested the following day outside a hotel in Houston, Texas, about 250 miles away, where they'd left their getaway car in the parking lot for several hours. Louisiana, known as the incarceration capital of the world, locks up more of its residents per capita than any other U.S. state. Juvenile detention centers in the state have faced special scrutiny amidst a wave of escapes, uprisings, suicides, and the revelation that solitary confinement for youths in the state is a common practice, according to a recent report by the Marshall Project. On Sunday, May 22nd, Three fights broke out in separate housing units, one after the other, inside the Santa Barbara County Jail, according to the Santa Barbara County Sheriff's Public Information Officer. According to the Sheriff's Office, seven prisoners were struck by pepper balls and six were exposed to pepper spray. Fifteen total prisoners were removed from their units for examination and decontamination. Two tasers were deployed. According to a family member who spoke with NewsHawk, one person reported that, quote, Almost all the inmates were pepper sprayed, and many were forced out into the yard, where they were made to lie on the ground. At this time, there is no information about what precipitated the fight between prisoners. On the evening of May 29th, two minors who were detained at the St. Louis County Juvenile Detention Center in Clayton, Missouri, escaped from the facility. As of Monday, May 30th, they have yet to be recaptured. This week, Bella Bravo speaks with Johanna Bouillon, a journalist and author of a series of articles about immigrant surveillance. They talk about a vast program called the Intensive Supervision Appearance Program, which purports to be a quote-unquote humane alternative to immigration detention. Managing the program on behalf of ICE is BI Inc., a subsidiary of the GEO Group, one of the U.S.'s largest private prison corporations. They note the many similarities between this method of monitoring immigrants and what we know as e-carceration, or electronic monitoring systems used for probation, parole, and house arrest. Here they are. My name is Johanna Buya, and I am a senior tech reporter and editor at The Guardian, and I specifically cover surveillance of marginalized groups. Um, I've been doing surveillance coverage um, pretty much on and off for the majority of my career, but um, in a really dedicated way for the last two years. Um, and prior to that, I've, I've just covered tech generally, but still from an accountability focus. So 
I covered a lot of labor and tech and I've covered, you know, pretty much any time a company was trying to exploit a disenfranchised group, I was writing about it. The series of stories that I put out was, I mean, it was a month long investigation into an ICE program called the Intensive Supervision Appearance Program. It's one of the many alternative to detention programs, quote unquote, that ICE has. The pitched goal like, is to create a more, quote unquote, humane alternative to detaining immigrants. I started uh, reporting on it because a source of mine was like, there's a customer support center where, where hundreds of people who work for a private contractor monitor, you know, at that point, 100,000 immigrants 24 seven. Um, and that's pretty much all they knew and all they told me. And I was like, oh, let me try to reach out to these people. Because um, I found a lot in my reporting. And it's kind of like, one of my best tips as a reporter is reach out to customer support workers at companies because they have, you know, don't have like a high investment in the company. They're often exploited themselves, but they still know quite a bit about how companies work. So I was like, let me just reach out to them and see what they say. And that's kind of, you know, I, I reached out to a few folks and they immediately started talking to me a little bit about it. And it sort of sparked this uh, longer investigation into the company. BI Incorporated is the name of the company. BI has had the exclusive contract with ICE since 2004 to run, you know, again, what is called an alternative to detention program. And they're basically tasked with two things. One, ensuring people show up to court to their immigration hearings and two, providing sort of case management services, which is like, you know, studies have shown actually do help people show up to court. So for example, pro bono attorneys and other social services. And the company actually initially started as a manufacturer of cattle monitoring devices. So things that help people monitor cows. And they were acquired by private prison corporation, the country's, one of the country's largest private prison corporations, the Geo Group, uh, in 2011. Um, so it went from cattle monitoring to monitoring immigrants um, and now a part of sort of the larger carceral industry. Um, NBI Incorporated might be familiar to some people um, because they also run as a parallel business, um, the parole electronic monitoring uh, system. So, and, and, and not just parole, there's pre-detention electronic monitoring that's become like a very big thing in the country, sort of in response to bail reform across, you know, many states and NBI does run a, quite a bit of that as well. You would definitely think that um, Geo Group's primary business, primary bread and butter, which is uh, private prisons and other detention centers, immigration detention centers as well, would be sort of a competing interest um, when it comes to BI, which runs electronic monitoring. But as we've seen in the last few years, private prisons have become much more controversial. And in fact, in January, the Biden administration introduced, I think it was an executive order um, that reduced the federal government's reliance on private prisons. So the private prison side of Geo Group's business is under attack. Once that executive order went through, their stock dropped. Like it's a, you know, they're really hurting when it comes to private prisons. Obviously, private prisons still exist, but there is sort of a I think public turn on, you know, people all mostly believe that that's like private companies should not profit off of the carceral state. Um, and so what is happening is a lot of people are introducing less severe, quote unquote, um, alternatives to detention, one being electronic monitoring. And that business is thriving 
Um, and, you know, as a for-profit company, which is, again, it's, it's one of the issues with having, a, you know, for-profit companies running things like our immigration system and our prison system. I mean, they just saw this really big opportunity um, to continue to, uh, I mean, pad their bottom line. And so uh, electronic monitoring is, has become a very, very important part of their overall business. When I first started reporting on this, the most public and most recent numbers that we had on people who were in the alternative to detention program was about 100K, a little bit over that. In the months since then, there were about 80,000 people added to the program. And part of it is, you know, the, the administration, the current administration, the past administration, everyone's sort of arguing, I mean, or at least the current administration is arguing that it's in order to keep people out of the detention. Like the whole point is to curb detentions. But at the same time that this number is expanding, so are detentions. So, you know, one doesn't actually, one isn't an alternative to the other. It's sort of supplementing this sort of larger uh, immigration detention system. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of reports, uh, this wasn't in my story, but several uh, other publications are reporting that more people are being put on um, different electronic monitoring uh, devices. It's not just an ankle monitor. It's also uh, a cell phone app that tracks your location and that you have to upload a picture to um, once a week. You know, the company themselves have has talked about internally how they they basically are providing a solution for all administrations. Like for administrations that want to be really really hard on immigration, they have detention centers. For those who want to appear more humane and softer on immigration, they have ankle monitors and apps. And so we're currently in an administration that wants to appear like more humanitarian when it comes to immigration. Although we've seen in many ways that that's not always the case. Um, and so we're seeing a bigger push toward these surveillance system and what a lot of activists called e-carceration as opposed to detention. The experience for immigrants who are either on an ankle monitor or a cell phone um, app, or now they're trying to uh, test a home curfew uh, surveillance system where people can't leave their homes for 12 hours a day. I think it, it puts a lot of people, particularly activists who are fighting against the entire system, kind of between a rock and a hard place, because of course, is it better than being in a detention center? Certainly, but it's not necessarily in and of itself more humane. Um, and so people who are wearing ankle monitors complain of really malfunctioning devices where the ankle monitor overheats to the point where they've had to put band-aids around the, their leg to put socks between the monitor and their foot um, because it's burning them. They also have complained that uh, there's just so many people in the system and so many people being processed that ICE officers who put the ankle monitors on people um, going into this program put it on too tightly so it cuts them. Um, it's too heavy um, so it, make, it makes it really difficult to walk. Um, it's really big and bulky, so people can't sleep. Um, but there's also just like a great deal of emotional, like, you know, I mean, it just like it's there's shame involved, right? It's really hard to hide the ankle monitor. And these are people, you know, not to say that anyone ever deserves to be put in a program like this, right? But there's always this argument about like the the opposition will always say, well, they should have done this legally, right? But like even people who are going through the quote unquote legal process, like asylum seekers are in this program as well, right? So it doesn't, there isn't really any kind of distinction anyway. So that, that, that argument sort of falls flat. 
And, you know, there's no due process. People are, it's just kind of arbitrary. They're just like, you could, you're, this person will be on an ankle monitor. This person's going to be in detention. And so what I found in talking to a lot of people who had the ankle monitor in particular is that they just felt, you know, they like just, they felt constantly criminalized. And they also, they just felt like they had to sort of defend against any suspicions that they were criminals or had committed a crime. Um, many had difficulty finding jobs, which was, like one of the requirements of getting the ankle monitor off is to find live in one place for 90 days um you know you're more you more easily go through the program if you have an attorney both of those things require money and if you don't have a job and people won't hire you um you can't do those other things so like the system itself really works against people in it and so yes the ankle monitor is like a very terrible very onerous system uh, that people like feel very feel physically so much like detention right people are so desperate to get out of detention that they're willing to accept and be entered into this program people are so desperate to get off of this ankle monitor that they're so willing to go onto the app and they ask very few questions you know they're just like whatever just get this ankle monitor off me I'll take a picture every week I don't care um, and that's kind of the difficulty that I found in covering this is anytime I asked even attorneys about this, people in the program about the app, like, do you know what they do with your data? Do you know, did you ever ask them why you need to send your picture in and things like that? People were like, oh, well, no, I just like never thought to ask that because I, I just wanted to get my ankle monitor off. It's hard for me to get this across in stories, but I think one of the things that activists are really worried about is that while the ankle monitor is much more physically straining, the app, might be more of a permanent method of surveillance because all of that data and location will just live on these company servers for however long they want. And again, it's a private company who have, they have financial interests and biometric data is a huge, you know, there's a huge market for it. People want to buy user data. Um, and it's not even like if, even if they don't sell it to other data brokers or private companies, uh, their own company encourages law enforcement agencies that they work with to share data with each other. So like once an immigrant, um, let's say they go through the process, they get their court hearings, they are um, given their papers, they may still be surveilled because that information may have been provided to another law enforcement agency who then has them on a list, you know, and th that's often how predictive policing works as well. So, yeah, I mean, I think through and through that, like many, everyone who I've spoken to, it's just like a sort of a cycle of desperation. And then they're willing to accept whatever feels less and less onerous, which is often digital surveillance. But as we have seen, like in the surveillance space, digital surveillance is much more pervasive and can and, and can follow you much for much longer. And I think anyone anticipating or familiar with the parole system will recognize this buffet of surveillance and wanting to take, oh, anything that's less like physically intrusive as like the quote unquote best option, um, when really it is both like a form of surveillance, it's a form of e-carceration, but at the same time, no one knows what the consequences of that are ultimately going to be. You mentioned that sometimes the app uh, malfunctions and that there's been a really significant increase in the number of people being surveilled. I wonder if that leads to problems. And so I was wondering if you could speak to this 
kind of great weight that comes with surveillance because ultimately what the threat is, is detention. Even if you're not in detention now, you are always anticipating being put in detention for a problem, some sort of suspicion, a glitch, a malfunction. Yes, that's the other part about this company is that they're not Google, right? Like, and even Google's app, like they glitch and they malfunction. Um, So their apps, you know, I mean, if you look at just, you know, app store reviews, and it's the same app that uh, parolees have to use as well. So it's called SmartLink. And every, like, I cannot, I like could not find a positive review. Like it was all about how it like, it won't let people log in and it won't let people send in their pictures or like they had to delete it and reinstall it. And then they, you know, there's just, uh, you know, tons of complaints about the app. And in any other case, like if my Twitter app stopped working, it's like not a big deal. I'd be annoyed at the moment, but here the stakes are, I may be either deported or detained again. I actually am talking to other folks who are currently using electronic monitoring for pretrial detention. And they're like, I can't log in. And they keep threatening to arrest me again um, because their app isn't working. So the stakes are incredibly, incredibly high. Um, And in particular, with this population of people who are on it, um, migrants, you know, many are not English speakers. And many, you know, again, aren't able to hold down a job or, you know, they have like a job, they, they don't have smartphones or can't afford smartphones. So there is an aspect of this where a lot of case managers who used to work at BI told me they felt like it was penalizing poverty um, because, you know, one person that we spoke to, uh, she's a lawyer for a woman who had a Cricut wireless phone and her app literally would not load, like that she could not send like a geotag selfie as it was required. And she ultimately was given fugitive status, you know, and this is like a woman who's been in the country for 15 years and like, she happened to be put like sort of like in the deportation process after she admitted guilt to something like receiving stolen goods. Like she'd been in this country for so long, right? She wasn't trying to leave. If the purpose of this program is to ensure that she shows up to court, she's going to show up to court. She wants to be in this country. And so She's given, you know, assign this app. She's supposed to sign in once a week and send in her picture with a location. It doesn't work on her phone. Um, she tries every possible way to figure it out, calls ICE, calls BI, tries to let them know, and they yell at her instead because every, many of the case managers I spoke to said they felt like it was sort of a cop mentality internally. They were told that, like, most people in the program try to abscond and try to get out of the system. I wouldn't go so far as to say that they were told that they were criminals, but a lot of the messaging really did basically warn that they may do something wrong. I mean, in fact, one of the, so the ICE contract requires a bunch of different trainings, one of which is self-defense. Four people who told me that they they were in the program told me that the self-defense training included basically like how to get out of the grips of an attacker. Two people told me that they were told how to break someone's knee. And all of this was, you know, in case a person in this program, so a migrant, tried to attack them. Even if the company themselves didn't explicitly say, well, these are criminals, they're going to try to commit a crime. Sources of ours who either had sponsored uh, people in the program or were case managers or were themselves people in the program told us, you know, one time, you know, this is not the app itself, but one time one woman that we spoke to, she was wearing an ankle monitor, was trying to pull her jeans over her ankle monitor. It like 
made like move the ankle monitor a little bit. They called her and they were like, are you trying to get away? And she's like, no, I'm, I just like was putting jeans on. And they were like, you have to show up to the office to prove it to us. And she had to drop everything, find someone to take care of her kids, find someone to drive her to the office. You know, like it is a system that for the immigrants who are in the program is really based on fear. Someone coming out of prison into a parole system um, or someone um, being put through a pretrial detention surveillance program, they have a similar incentive to show up to their court proceedings. There's a lot of evidence and studies to show that court reminders for very large population work just as effectively, um, if not more effectively, than these other forms of surveillance that require constant contact with the criminal justice system. And in fact, the more contacts with something that's considered, quote unquote, the criminal justice system, the more likely it is that it increases recidivism. A bunch of lawmakers led by Representative Rashida Tlaib's office wrote a letter to DHS asking for, essentially asking for a little bit more transparency. You know, because BI is a private company by nature, there's very little transparency into the way that the company operates, which one of my story, I think, exposed in a way that we hadn't seen before. But, you know, we, like as an administration, like there's really not a lot of transparency into why the company does what it does. But they also did ask the administration to reevaluate their exclusive contract with BI entirely. Um, And one thing that they brought up was, well, President Biden said that private companies should not profit off of the carceral system. And why should this be different? So while I don't think that they like explicitly said, don't work with a private company to run this program, they basically were very much hinting at that. Like why, if we shouldn't trust private companies to run prisons, why should we trust them to run this you know, vast immigration surveillance program? And it is actually one of the largest supervision programs in the country, um, just given the number of people in it. The other thing that they asked for was more transparency into how they manage data um, in the SmartLink app. Again, we really don't know. I had one last story that looked into the data of it. And there's things that I found out just like from pulling public documents and also talking to immigrants who they were told that like the, the app was tracking them at all times. They always had to have the, their battery on and their phone couldn't die. Or, and if it did, they would have to call to explain. But I says they only track your location when you check in once a week. So those two things don't really jive, right? And while I did have these other anecdotes kind of at the very, very least showing that the information ICE is giving the public and the information BI case managers are giving people in the program are very different, we still don't know, right? Like I still have more, like I, we, I'm presenting more information for us to ask questions about, but they are still unanswered questions, unfortunately. So lawmakers are asking about that. As journalists, I can't like opine on this, right? But if we as a country have come around to the idea that a private company can't ethically run prisons, you know, we should probably be asking the same questions about a private company and whether they can ethically run an immigration surveillance program where they're financially incentivized to not just implement existing surveillance technology, but introduce new versions of surveillance. I mean, they charge for every little thing. They charge for home visits. They charge for every single ankle monitor per day. They charge for the app. Some are more expensive than others. And so they do have a financial incentive to push some products over others, whether or not that is like, is a part of how they 
they actually make decisions is not something that I have reporting to prove. But we do at the very least know that ankle monitors, I think, you know, two employees told me that they had heard that it was four to five dollars a day per ankle monitor, whereas for the app, it's like 25 cents a day. So, you know, they're like, if we're talking about a company that is, you know, is really trying to optimize their finances while one part of their business is getting completely decimated, there are ways for them to ensure that they continue making money or make more money. There's very real questions about whether or not we should have private companies running any aspect of this because one, lack of transparency, two, questions about ethics, like three, should someone be profiting off of the surveillance of people who are simply trying to gain access or and you know come to this country for better opportunities and in some cases to literally just not die in another country. We'll have links to this story along with links to subsequent articles published on this topic on our website, kitelineradio.org. This has been KiteLine. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.